I consumed a lot of media about pathological liars since I had an experience in my 20s. And I am always struck by the similarities in the patterns of speech and the ways that liars will get you to doubt yourself. Even when it's so obvious that someone is lying, they will get you to feel like the worst person on earth forever doubting them. I'm Nathan Maharaj, and this is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is Zoe Whittle, poet, screenwriter, and novelist. Her new book, The Fake, is a novel about a liar named Cammy and the people who fall under her spell and then have to pick up the pieces of their lives when they fall out of it. Zoe Whittle, welcome to Kobo. Hi, so nice to be here. The fake of the novel's title is Cammy. Tell me about her. How did you conceive of this character and, and her story? So Cammy is in some ways a little bit unknowable. So she's the con artist at the center of the book. The story wouldn't exist without her, but the book is really about the two people who get taken in by her. We do meet her, like we do get to hear her own voice in the prologue and the epilogue. Um, but uh, she's a very unreliable narrator of her own experience, both in the book and I think if she were a real person, I would imagine that as well. Um, and so I wasn't entirely sure I was going to write from her perspective, but I felt like I needed to give the reader a taste of what it's like to feel manipulated by her. And when she was really fun to write that way, because and even um, I felt like I knew that the section that I wrote from her perspective was working when the fact checker, the copy editor was saying like, oh, well, that detail that she says here is not correct. And I was like, well, no, she's lying. She's lying to us. Um, <laughs> but I got caught up and I was like, oh, right, right. It doesn't really matter. If she says this thing about a certain time. She's just trying to pull one over on us. And the, uh, the reason why I thought that she would be an interesting character um, was that I wanted to, to make her a sort of consummate uh, sort of con woman. She's very charming. She's very, uh, you know, one of those people where you meet and you're like, was I destined to meet this person? I'm so connected to them. She knows exactly what I'm going to say next. She like zeroes in on who... Uh, who I am, you know, one of those experiences that feels faded, but she's she's kind of charming and manipulating her way through all of those social interactions to make it seem that way. And uh, and so that's why she's the heart of this novel. Uh, and uh, I hope is a fun <laughs> person to wonder about. As you say, the book begins with this section, a note from Camilla before you start reading, which is very amusing and also I found unsettling uh, because, of course, I was already reading uh, and she was trying to get to me before I read. Uh, she's flattering. She she says uh, that we, the reader, uh, are smart because we're reading books. I don't disagree. And then she kind of fire hoses like a bunch of fragments of this incredible biography. And she makes this plea for a right to defend herself against charges not yet leveled. When did you write this section of the book, this this section, this note from Camilla before we start reading? So I wrote, uh, I think probably about half the manuscript before I did that, because I was, I knew that I wanted it to be from two people's perspective and that they wouldn't meet until the middle and that they would meet, they would be two strangers who would encounter each other 
as people who were both close to Cammy, and then they would figure out that she was lying to both of them about each other and about everything. And that Cammy had been sort of manipulating them so that they wouldn't trust each other. And I knew my, my friend Lisa, who reads a lot of my early work, said, you know, I think you really need to have Cammy on the page. And I wasn't sure because I had this like resistance, because first of all, I I I found it difficult to figure out why Cammy lies. Like, is she a narcissist? Is she a sociopath? Is she uh is it like a PTSD response? Is it a bunch of all of these things put together? Mm-hmm. And so it felt kind of uncomfortable to write someone that I couldn't really know, that didn't really have an interiority I could access. Like I could maybe try to make it up as one does as a fiction writer, but I wasn't confident that I would be able to nail that because there are just so many questions. Um, and there's like an unanswerable question at the heart of the novel, which I think there usually is. But in my case, it was like, how do we, you know, how do we deal with someone who we can't know? who nonetheless has like an extreme um, impact on, on these characters' lives. So about halfway through, I sort of started to write it as an experiment. And I think that sometimes when I'm writing rough drafts, I fall back on a sort of breathless first-person monologue uh, because it's a very comfortable voice for me to jump into. Uh-huh. Um, and I sort of man- I managed to like imagine her on stage talking directly to the audience. And so that's sort of why I had her speaking directly to the reader and kind of breaking that wall um, because I felt like I, that was the purpose was to get, was to like implicate the reader and get the reader directly on stage with Cami. And I think it was something that my editor questioned in terms of the form. It was a real break with the form, but I felt like because Cami's sections were so short yet, yet, necessary i felt like it was okay to then jump into a novel where you hear um from either narrator like back and forth as they discover who cammy really is or really or isn't yeah so i felt like as soon as i wrote it i knew it had to be there it like it came out very quickly and automatically and i felt like okay this is gonna work did writing that immediately necessitate that Cammy would have the last word as well? It's not like I wanted her to have the last word, but I did want there to be for the reader to arrive at the end of Shelby and Gibson's story and to know what the truth was, quote unquote. And then I wanted there to be a little parting uh, discomfort or curiosity from so that they would be leaving being like, did she really have cancer? They didn't know like, because there are ways that, like, you know, my own experience when I was had someone in my life who lied about cancer, there there are ways that, um, you know, liars don't really get reliably fact-checked, you know? Like, you mm. can uh, you could feel with your gut, like, they're lying about this and this and this, but, like, unless you have a doctor in the room who's like, yes, she's making it all up, you don't really know. And, uh, and so I wanted there to be a little, a little bit of mystery still at the end. In addition to Cammy, as you said, there are two other characters two other main characters, Shelby and Gibson. These are the people that Cammie seduces in different ways with her with her fabrications. How did you assemble this kind of three-piece, three-voice story with these these this pair of, um, I guess for Cammie, they're marks. They're, they're, they're people she pulls into her life. Well, I knew that I wanted to tell the story through the eyes of a lover because I felt like, Cammy was going to be extremely seductive in kind of a literal way. And I was, I'm interested in writing about um, midlife and divorce and like uh, 
you know how life doesn't ever look the way we imagine and i i felt like gibson was a was a great um way to do that and i all but i also wanted to have you know i wanted to have the lover and the best friend of the of the con artist and mm-hmm. um and the best friend character kind of came naturally when as soon as i thought of the grief group i was like okay this is this is how this is going to happen because i needed it to be believable that the, I wanted the reader to be able to not just give up right away because who would be dumb enough to be taken in this way? You know, like uh-huh. there are some, there are flags early on. And I think that often, even with the most charismatic, intelligent con artists, there are always like instinctive feelings that people have that think something's not right. Mm. And so the characters necessarily needed to be people who were at a vulnerable point in their life and who were second guessing certainties about themselves and who really needed intimacy, but could not figure out how to get it or couldn't, could no longer get it from the people who had reliably provided it. And so for Shelby, it's because her wife died and she is disconnected from her family and friends who don't understand her grief. And for Gibson, it's because he was recently divorced and his his ex-wife was his best friend and his his rock, so to speak. And he's sort of at that point in life where I think post-divorce, a lot of uh, straight cis men are like, oh, right, I have to learn how to make friends. Yeah. I have to have community. And, and Gibson was sort of the kind of person who had a community through his wife or was his wife did a lot of that kind of. Uh, connection for him, provided that kind of connection for him. So he's sort of have to, having to rely on his own friends and uh, and also just is really depressed. I find depressed and anxious people, and so Shelby and, and Gibson are both de- very depressed and anxious at the beginning of the novel. I find there's so much like absurdity in that condition, and I feel mm-hmm. like it's very relatable, especially in the pandemic, for a lot of people to be feeling anxiety and grief and sadness. And, and so I was, I felt like I was able to write about this very serious thing that happens with these people who are very serious, um, you know, having serious mental health issues, um, because there was just like so much absurdity in the premise and in, and in those mental health issues in general, like I've lifelong, lifelong anxiety disorder sufferer slash, you know, it's just part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think it's very funny. I think there's like a lot of innate humor in the absurdity of those kinds of um, situations. So, so that's how I was able to write Shelby and Gibson, and and why I wanted to um, to have those particular characters be the narrators of this experience. We meet all three of them in pretty rapid succession, mm-hmm. and we get a lot of biographical fragments that we've got to assemble as as we go. Uh, you know, we get the scene of Shelby hiding in the closet from from a vague threat that might just be a raccoon going through her trash. We don't, we're not sure. <laughs> um, and we just met her, so we don't know. As a reader, I felt a little bit off balance, even even with my initial mistrust of Cammy from her like preemptive, completely unnecessary defense. I didn't know whether I could trust Gibson and Shelby either. Were you kind of seeking a, a little bit of an off balance to as as the story starts getting uh, getting going? I did want to dive right in quickly in part because I just spent like over 10 years writing the spectacular, which was initially supposed to be a historical novel and involved many narrators, many time periods. And I was really the sense fast. I was like really eager to write a book that takes place in three months. And, um, and also is about this very intense, but ultimately very quick period in their life that somewhat, um, 
shifts their their um kind of shifts how they feel about the role of honesty and intimacy in their lives so i wanted it to be quick and like jumping into a cold pool Mm -hmm. um at first and then you know hopefully the depth of character and the depth of the story would come through despite the quickness like i wanted there to be a bit of a propulsiveness to those initial meetings and i was aware as i was writing i suppose that i could have you know that the the story of, of gibson and shelby falling i mean gibson and cammy falling in love you know could have been much longer and shelby's I could have gone deeper into the backstory of Shelby and Kate and what their marriage was like before Mm. she died. And there were all these potential ways to stretch the narrative. And ultimately I felt like the, the uh, pacing needed to be quicker because I didn't want to, um, to lose that feeling that you're on a train and Mm. the train is, is Cammy real or not. And, um, and so I didn't want to weigh it down, but I did, you know, one of my, uh, closest friends read it and he was really annoyed at the, he read like three chapters and was like, it's too disorienting. It's too quick. I don't know. I was like, <laughs> this was, he was reading an ARC and I was really like, really nervous about it. And then he called me a couple of days later and was like, oh no, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm deeper into it now and, it, and it's good. It's fine. But I did like, you know, I do, when you asked me that question, I was like, oh yeah, maybe that's not, uh, Maybe that's a, a turnoff for some readers, but but that was my intention was to to have it be uh, quick and dirty. Yeah, no, it's and it's great, and I love that it pays off. I mean, it's it's a it's a short novel, it's a fast moving novel, and mm-hmm. and that feeling of like I'm rocked on my heels, but you know, in the same in the same sitting when I'm when I'm getting into it, uh, I do you know begin to plant my feet a little bit better and get a sense of, of where things are rolling. So no, I, I think it's a successful, uh, su- successful device. And I'm delighted to hear that uh, um, you were able to uh, disconcert, uh, you know, friends and family with it as well <laughs> in, in, earlier on. I feel like the reality is that every novel I could, you could write them forever. They're never finished. Mm. And so there's always something about a book where when I, even when I'm, if I'm standing and giving a reading, I'll be editing as I read or, or I'll, be thinking of all oh, ways I should have changed it or could have changed it. And then eventually you just have to hand it in. So, you know, sometimes I do think about ways the book could be different mm. if there were more um, room to breathe. There are scenes uh, where we watch characters talking themselves out of doubt. They just smooth out inconsistencies in something that they perceive about cami there's you know two details can't both be true and they just push themselves past it those parts really rang true to me and and they were so inherently literary too because it was an internal state that was motivating their action and and it would you know it's the kind of thing that maybe nobody else would know about uh it would stay internal forever because because of shame um because because it's it's them complicit with their duping the insight into that of of catching that internal ironing out um because it is such an internal thing and and it is something that we don't talk about and and it's and it's shameful for 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 anybody who's who's been who's been duped by by somebody like Cammy. Yes, I think shame is an excellent route for narrative and I feel like I was very invested in having the reader letting the reader in on those interior 
thoughts of when you are when someone is manipulated because i think part of the pathology of pathological liars is that they have is I don't know, part of the pathology or part of the the pattern of speech mm-hmm. that's really common the the way the the phrasing the it's it's really disorienting it's really disorienting i think for most people who struggle to to like understand the truth about themselves and be able to communicate clearly it's a lifelong journey for us to be able to like feel things and then communicate clearly mm-hmm. and not be manipulated like it's it's difficult to be a human being and i think it's fascinating when when people like when pathological liars just sort of uh, hand you their delusion and, and, and insist that you that you go along on that journey with them, and it's, so you're sort of having this human instinct to be like, oh no, maybe they're right. Like you, we want to believe people we love, especially, mm-hmm. and so uh, there's a very very specific way that like narcissists and, and pathological liars are, hone in on your insecurities and identify them and then sort of use them to make you get, you know, second guess yourself or doubt yourself. And I think that um, even when it's really clear, especially it's very clear in retrospect. And I think a lot of the reason why I wanted to write this novel was to, um, to write from the perspective of the people being duped less as like a sensationalized kind of mystery and more of a like examination of, of how, what that humiliation looks like, feels like, sounds like, um, because it's a very unique experience and it does really screw with your brain and your mm. ability to trust people. And I think that it's also like, I consumed a lot of media about pathological liars in the, like, since I had an experience in my twenties mm. and I am always struck by the similarities in the patterns of speech and the ways that um, liars will get you to doubt yourself. Uh, even when it's so obvious that someone is lying, they will get you to feel like the worst person on earth forever doubting them, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's something that's very hard to explain. And like, I remember when I when I had, was dating someone who told lied to me about having cancer, one of my friends, met her and at the end of the night and her, and my friend's mom had died of cancer pretty shortly like shortly before this experience and she was like i don't think she has cancer i don't believe anything she says and i was like mm-hmm. what and it was totally it totally threw me i wish i could have gone back to be like oh right maybe i should break up with this person you know <laughs> but i think there are ways that it seems ridiculous to people on the outside unless you're like in the relationship and you understand you are like being kind of hooked in it's sort of like they're a weird villain superhero villain and they've like figured out how to hypnotize you in a way Mm. and uh and so like i wanted shelby and gibson to be experiencing that you mentioned of course several times you've you've alluded to personal experience (laughs) of having someone in your life who 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 lied at this grand level but it's it's a it's it, you know it didn't happen it's not something that happened like you know last year or the or you know recently you've been carrying this experience for, for some time what clicked into place for you to be able to draw on those experiences in a way that that could become this novel? I think it might be middle age because mm. I'm 47 now. And especially during COVID, like not a lot happens. <laughs> not a lot has <laughs> been in my own life that I would write about. And I, you know, I do. And the book is incredibly fictionalized, like the person in my life, nothing like Cammy, mm-hmm. but um I did have several experiences in my 20s that were really remarkable that I always knew I would want to write about, and this was one of them. And I actually met, had an encountered with a woman in Montreal who also had this entirely made-up life in a really theatrical way. 
And I was just like, you know, when you kind of, I kind of have a little cork board in my mind where I put up like, I'm going to write about that someday. Like I also had like two experiences in university for um, where I was present in a room where two people figured out that they were siblings and that they both had like philandering fathers and that they both like they did just kind of clicked. And I don't know why I was witness to both of these two experiences <laughs> and both of those two like there was a two sisters and a sister brother and both of them had connected because they were attracted to one another, which is super weird and interesting. And they all figured it out before anything happened, but it was like, they, there was like a weird way that they were drawn to each other that they could only understand that's attraction because otherwise it didn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's another thing on my court, but I'm like, eventually I'm going to write that. I don't know how I'm going to use that. So there are always and like little anecdotes or little extraordinary moments and I think that I just happened to have a lot of extraordinary moments in my 20s because my life was more fast-paced and uh and everything was new but I also feel like in the pandemic and I moved out to the country by myself after having a partner and his two kids for a couple of years and so my life got quiet yeah and I felt like oh maybe this is the time to write about a con artist because I never stopped being fascinated. Like part of the reason I think I stayed in that relationship was that I was fascinated. Um, <laughs> I've always like, and I think I, that's just part of being a writer or part of being an introvert or something about who I am that like, I was a very quiet kid. I grew up on a farm. I had a lot of imaginary friends. I read constantly and I just like, I've always been drawn to remarkable people and to people who are very emotionally chaotic. And so this was one of those experiences where I was like, okay, I want to take this extreme character, this extreme personality I encountered and like somehow fictionalize the experience of having gone through that um, into characters that I am interested to spend some time with. As you described your twenties and being there for two sibling discoveries um, and growing up with, with imaginary friends uh, in, in my mind, I'm thinking, God, if you hadn't grown up to be a novelist, what a loss to for for the universe to have wasted these experiences on someone who then didn't didn't go and create stories for us all to read. Right. <laughs> uh, I can do. So. I can do. So. <laughs> yeah, this is exactly fated, right? I think I'm not spoiling anything. Uh, you've alluded to, to this uh, a little bit um, uh, earlier that Shelby and Gibson they they do figure out something is up well before halfway through the book. Which means that the narrative tension of the of the novel isn't coming from will they find out or won't they? You you structure it so the tension is really about okay, so now now you think something's up. What are you going to do about it? Yes, I always knew, I knew the structure quite early, and I knew that I didn't want it to be a mystery, mm-hmm. and I didn't want it to be is she telling the truth or not? Because I feel like that's a lot to ask the reader to like go with you on that journey when they, any smart reader would probably know. Yeah. And it kind of cheapens what is a more complex emotional experience. Um, I was thinking about Elizabeth McCracken. She was saying withholding information for the re- from the reader so that you can reveal it on the final page is akin to pulling an ace from under the table at the end of a card game. The reader won't think the writer is great at cards. The reader will think this writer cheats at cards. Mm. 
so I was thinking about that. And so I knew I needed to tell the reader up front what the, the jig was, but that the story and the propulsiveness of the story would be in like watching these two people figure it out. Um, and there are also ways that like a lot of con artist stories are about, um, I'm thinking of like Dirty John or Do You Know Mordecai mm-hmm. or like con artists, people who pretend to be surgeons, you know, mm-hmm. like people who are actually causing violence. And I think that Cammy's manipulations and um, her, the way that she harms others is, is, isn't that, you know, like, mm-hmm. and it's not easy to pin down. And it's, you know, Gibson at one point says, you know, I, I think that she would be mostly a harm to herself, but now I don't know, which is how I have the hook out at the beginning. Yeah. And I did structure that because I did want there to be a little bit of mystery about like what chaos ensues. But um, I think it is true by the end of the novel that Cammy, it's clear that, that Cammy is self-destructive and she happens to like lash out and manipulate people in her wake. But that like, the person who is harmed most is Cammy, like just just the person who cannot have true intimacy ever. And that's a sad thing, even if, you know, there's something biologically different in her brain that causes her to lie like this, or if it's trauma, or if it's, you know, who knows the real reason. But there is something about her being like a lone wolf in the world, just uh, causing that kind of chaos to to people who are real feeling empathetic people. and I think I wanted to make sure that it wasn't a black and white kind of morality tale of like, look at this person who steals and lies, like, you know, um, because I think we all lie in certain ways. And and I think that Shelby and Gibson are all, uh, what happens to them that makes them think about like who, who they are, what they value and mistakes they've made in connecting or disconnecting with people. Mm-hmm. So as we've discussed, Camilla Hammy gets the last word in a final note from Camilla, which, which I need to note. I mean, anybody who even sees the the table of contents will see it comes after the epilogue. I mean, she cannot be contained. I mean, it, it, it's, she's, she's all but like hijacking, you know, your author's note. Um, she, she just is relentless in, in working on the reader's, uh, credibility, uh, on the, on the readers, on, on the credibility the reader is willing to extend to her for her to show up at, at this point, after we've, we've been through the story, we've seen what the outcome is. The, the Gibson and Shelby are off to live the lives they're going to have after this experience. And, and I had this moment of questioning after Cammie's spoken to me in this note, what do I really know? Like, what do I really know? As I'm turning like the last page, I'm still not completely sure that I can write off Cammie. Tell me about crafting that. Uh, and and the effect uh, in in Hammy's uh, voice um, closing it out. Well, here's the thing. I think <laughs> that if you have an experience with a liar who you let them know the jig is up, and you know that they're lying about everything, what happens most often in the stories that are not you know, made into HBO shows or whatever, or even those ones that are, is that um, it's not like they learn a lesson. You know, there I tried very hard to find real people to speak to 
who had recovered from Munchausen's, who had recovered from pathological lying. It's very stigmatized, and I think it's very hard for people to get help when they don't want to admit they need they need help, mm-hmm. and um, or or something in their brain chemistry prevents them from understanding that they need help. You know, there's a variety of different expert opinions, and and I'm definitely no expert, but I think that what most often happens, and what happened with the two people I knew in my twenties, was that they just like move on down the road. Mm. They go to town they tell people lies about the people that they used to know and they just keep it they keep going and i think like a lot of extreme narcissists or it depends on how you want to view what they're doing end up actually having kind of positions of power because they just um move along and and do it somewhere else and unless they do something very violent it's like very hard to detect them um and so you know, I wanted the reader to realize that, that like Gibson and Shelby are never going to get revenge. They're never going to get resolution. They're never going to get closure. She's never going to apologize. She's just going to find a new boyfriend and a new, a new friend group and keep doing it. If it was a script, it would be like, like I would end it on a scene of her meeting her next Mark and moving on, you know, Mm. like, because uh, I think that that is not actually quite accurate to what happens. For anyone who's experienced uh, a relationship with someone like Cammy, who's who's um, someone whose lies have had real costs for the people around them, I think this story hits a little differently from how it would hit somebody who's, you know, just reading a story about this awful broken person, this person who who cannot form close connections and and creates these fabulous stories about themselves but that made me think uh made me wonder as you're writing it were you thinking of a readership that would have varying degrees of firsthand experience similar to your own i was i was thinking about because i was trying to think of um you know, why I'm so drawn to watching the dropout or inventing Anna or those Mm. kinds of stories. And I feel like I have a a real desire to understand why others fall for people like Mm. that, because it, because it was such a unique experience in my life. And I also am interested in things like uh, codependence and people pleasing and, and and people who are like more likely to be drawn in. Um, And so I, I was kind of keeping an an eye out for like like thinking about the reader who might have gone through something similar. And I was always also trying to think of the reader who hadn't the one who's like, I would never you know, watches a show about a Connors and is like, I'd never fall for that and try to get into this you know, to write scenes that really um illustrate the effectiveness of that kind of manipulation and the the very specific ways that almost anyone could be taken in in the right circumstance um and that was interesting to me as well so yeah i mean you never really know how a book is going to be read and it's not Mm -hmm. really your responsibility as the writer and i've learned because this is my oh my god it's 11th book but like you know sixth novel that like every time i do a q a i realize that that people are reading the book entirely differently than I intended. And you, you kind of have to like laugh about it and, and let it go. So in some ways I don't really know how 
it will be received. But I do hope that if somebody has been conned or lied to in a significant extreme way, that they would find kind of solace in, in this kind of book because mm. it's not tidy and it's really kind of a messy um disorienting experience and that's that's what i was hoping for in the novel that it would be quick and propulsive but that would also like be true to the disorienting nature of these kind of encounters and relationships mm. pivoting to one of your other careers in addition to being a novelist you are also a screenwriter You've worked on Schitt's Creek, and I know people love to ask you about that, but I I love sketch comedy. And oh, I understand yeah. among your many artistic accomplishments, it, it is my understanding you wrote the Mercury in Retrograde sketch on Baroness Von Sketch Show. I did, and I loved writing that sketch. I was they only aired it in the special um there was a special season that they put out at the end of like sketches that hadn't aired and it didn't air because the police uniforms that they had that day weren't fitted properly so if you watch it you yeah can jen and aurora are swimming in those those uniforms yeah they are so that sketch was supposed to air in, in a previous season it never did and i was crushed <laughs> and uh and so i was really happy that it did i, I liked writing that sketch yeah. And uh, I mean, shelving Meredith McNeil's performance in that was just, that's, that's, that's a crime unto itself. <laughs> the way she delivers in that. Um, I do have a question here. I'm not, we're not just fangirling over uh, my, my favorite uh, Baroness von sketch uh, sketches has working in comedy. How has that informed your craft as a novelist? So I got into comedy writing sort of accidentally in that I was writing The Best Kind of People, which was a novel that was very serious. And I had always been desperate to try stand-up comedy. And I took a class as a way to sort of uh, find some relief from this serious writing project and ended up loving it, ended up doing it for a couple of years, not really quite professionally, but sort of semi-professionally. And then I took a class at the comedy bar that was how to turn your stand-up into a half-hour sitcom pilot. Mm. And then I did that and I ended up um selling it to a producer who sold it to ctv and that's how i got into tv um you know most people have to kind of work their way up from the bottom and i never had to do that which is great because i would have been a really shitty script coordinator like i have no organizational <laughs> skills but anyway so i was able to kind of get in sideways and then get an agent and then get my first job on degrassi which was like a wonderful a wonderful experience um and it has helped my prose. So that was like 2014 was my first job. Mm. So it's been almost 10 years. And I would say that writing for TV has helped me understand plot in a way and action. And, you know, I started out as a poet and I started out like I love reading experimental writing. I, I'm, you know, the, the plotless novel section at Type Books is my favorite. Oh, I'm, I'm a big fan. Very yeah, I'm not a plot-oriented reader. I'm. I love uh, style and language and playfulness, and um, in, you know that's how I read, and that's sort of how I started out writing. Mm. And so, writing for screen has helped me. You know, I I'm still a character. You know, character begets plot and language first kind of writer, but it does. It has helped me organize the story in my head and structure it a little more cohesively it's helped with narrative coherence i think generally and with um and doing comedy writing has helped me to find the irony in everything like i it has helped me to um strengthen my dialogue and also to just you know it, 
if you're writing a character and you don't understand what they find funny or what's like inherently ironic about certain situations, then I feel like they're not really real on the page. And so now even when I'm writing a serious book, you know, there's always going to be humor in it in some way or another. As you describe how how uh, how screenwriting has, has you know tightened your your sense of of action and you know narrative structure, has it also in any way changed how you read? Sometimes, maybe. Not sure. <laughs> not sure if there's a relationship. I do my reading habits. I think especially during the pandemic shifted a little in that I, especially at the beginning, was really drawn to um, reading quicker novels. Um, and by quicker, I mean just like more commercial, commercially accessible kind of work, mm-hmm. um, just because my brain couldn't take another serious thing. And then, but I think like, you know, I don't know. I think I'm still, I think when I'm reading prose, I do want difficult. Like I, I don't, I feel like I watch TV to escape. Mm-hmm. And that there's an entertainment and art line. And I think that there's certain types of TV now that are is really artful and is actually like watching film. Mm-hmm. But there's still an element of entertainment and escapism. And and, uh, and I think reading, I'm still going to go towards the poetic and the difficult um, as a way to escape the non-seriousness of working in, in entertainment sometimes. Yeah. Mm. Zoe, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. (laughs) I have been speaking with novelist Zoe Whittle, author of the new novel, The Fake. Find it at Kobo and Conversations home on the web, kobo.com slash conversation. Check the show notes. There's a link there. And look, if you're still listening now, you must have enjoyed it. So do us a favor, tell a friend, nothing helps like word of mouth. Kobo and Conversation is produced by me, Nathan Maharaj, and is also often hosted by me, like it was just now. Thank you for listening. 